The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. And this week, Pastor's going to come and bring a message, and we're going to see how God's Word is reliable. Please stand with me as we prepare to read the scriptures this morning. 2 Peter chapter number 1, we're going to read verses 16 down through verse number 21. The Bible says, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's literally saying, hey, this isn't made up stuff. We literally saw Jesus. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. That word prophecy is referring to the word of God given to us. So Peter's saying here, we have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy, no word of God, no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Many of you just love going to the mailbox. You open it up and you see that letter that jury summons. How many of you just get so excited when you see that in the mail, right? All right. And uh, you get that thing. It's kind of like. Oh, and, and I know as an American, uh, it's my civic duty to go and uh, serve the liberties of our country. But I'll be honest, every time I get one of those, my heart kind of sinks a little bit. And I think to myself, I don't know if I have time for this. Any of you ever get there before? Is there anybody in the room right now? And you're like, man, I just love it every time I get one of those. I'm so excited. And maybe there's a few, one or two of you guys. And uh, I know in our early service, I was talking to the Waddells. And they were like, no, we live in America. And it's our civic duty. And I'm so excited every time I get to serve. And it was a wonderful thing. I said, well, you are in a minority, all right? Because some of us are just like, oh, man, it's, it's busy. And jury duty is kind of an interesting thing. I, I know for me personally, I have to do that thing where, you know, you call every night to find out if you're going to be doing jury duty the next day. And, and it just is kind of a long, drawn-out process. And I'll be sitting there, and we'll go to the courthouse early one morning, and I'm waiting. And I know in the back of my mind, no matter how long I have to wait, it's always going to end the exact same way. You know, I wait for hours and hours. Maybe they have to come back the next day and wait and wait and wait, and sometimes even a third day where I'll wait. And then you have that moment where you have to, they ask you questions and things, and mark it down every time. The moment they find out I'm a pastor, it's like somebody on one side or the other says, no, it's all right, you can go home, you know, and it just, that's how it happens every single time, and so it's kind of like, I almost want to just save them the time, you know, at the very front, hey, I'm a pastor, that means anything to either side, you know, let me, you know, let me know, but uh, for whatever reason, that just kind of seems to be the way it plays out. In a jury, there's a process by which a juror or a jury has to weigh out the facts, and they do this through the evidence that's provided to them by the two sides. And in much the same way, this is how we are going to navigate today's message. Uh, we're going to spend some time looking at the fact that God's Word is reliable. It's reliable. I know there might be some folks in, in your world, maybe neighbors, uh, maybe you have some coworkers, and they've said to you, How how can you trust the Bible? 
I mean, don't you realize it's just an old ancient book written by some ancient teachers? It's, it's not trustworthy. It has so many contradictions. And maybe you've even found yourself and you're like, oh, man, I, can I really trust the Bible? I, I know I'm a Christian. I know I go to church. But is it really trustworthy? And, and I'm finding as I'm talking to young people, if you find yourself in your early 20s, this is a question that a lot of young people are having right now. And I want to say this. It's good. I'm glad you have those questions. It's a good thing to have questions like that because we're going to spend some time today talking about what scholars uh, refer to as apologetics. Now, I know that's a strange word, apologetics. Uh, It it speaks to the um, ideology of defending the word of God. And so we're going to spend some time today really just looking at how do we weigh the evidence to what is the word of God. God. And, and much like in a jury, where a juror takes the evidences, they, they were not there at whatever the scene of the crime was or the event or circumstances that are being argued about. The juror was not there. They did not see it with their own eyes. They are simply given evidence, and then they have to make a decision based on the evidence that's presented to them. And in much the same way, that is how you and I, as we approach the scriptures, have to weigh out whether or not we can put our faith, our confidence, and our trust in the word of God. It was Charlie Campbell who said this, we're not asking people to believe the Bible just because it says so. We're going to talk about that in a moment because I believe we can, but he's saying no. We want people to believe the Bible because of the wealth of good evidence that has demonstrated the Bible to be trustworthy. Hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, thousands of archaeological discoveries, numerous details in the Bible that have been collaborated by extra-biblical historical sources, and so on and so forth. So our theme for this morning is simply this. While Christianity is founded on a bedrock of faith, and I'll pause it there for a moment. This is a faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. We understand that a part of what we're talking about is an element of faith. Uh, the Bible says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So we're not going to deny the fact that Christianity is built on the foundation and bedrock of faith. However, this is our point, this is our theme this morning. It is not by any stretch an irrational faith, but rather a highly informed faith. And and that's what we're going to unpack a little bit this morning. I'd like to spend some time over the next few moments exploring many of the evidences that lead me, and I hope lead us together, to a place where we can fully trust and place our confidence in the authenticity, uh, the correctness of the Word of God, the accuracy of Scripture. So, We're going to break this down into two parts. We're going to talk a little bit about the internal scriptural evidences. And then we'll take some moment to talk about the external uh, scholastic evidences. And those will be the two ways in which we look to uh, kind of navigate through this subject today. So let's start with the internal scriptural evidences to the word of God. And we even find this in our text in verse number 21. For the prophecy, the word of God came not in old times by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. And so we see here in Second Peter chapter number 1, verse number 20, 
21 that there is even scriptural evidence that leads us to hold confidence in the reality that God's word is true, all right? But maybe at work, maybe you've been talking to friends. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, does the Bible even claim to be God's word? I mean, I heard somebody talk one time, and I heard it said that, you know, the Bible doesn't even claim to be from God. Is that true? Well, let's spend some time looking at some scriptural evidence and ask ourselves, does the, does the Bible even claim to be the Word of God? Because if it doesn't claim to be the Word of God, then why, why even have this talk? Why even go down this path, all right? John chapter number 17, verse 17 says this, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So under this internal scriptural evidence that we're going to seek to provide to you today, I want to give you two thoughts. The first thought is this, the scriptures declare God to be the author of the Bible. The scriptures declare God to be the author of the Bible. Let me share some scripture references with you. You can jot these down uh, in your guide that you should have received on your way in that has the sermon notes for this morning, as well as your small group Bible study questions for later on in the week. And it also has some devotionals that'll equip you in, in just saturating your heart and mind in the word of God over these next 40 days. I hope that'll be a help to you. But first of all, I want you to see that the scriptures declare God to be the author of the Bible. Let's start moving through this psalm. Chapter number 68, verse 11 says this, The Lord gave the word. Great was the company of those that published it. So God gave it, and he used men to publish it, uh, to write it out. Psalms chapter number 68, verse 11. 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 16, the Bible says, All scripture, doesn't say some scripture, it doesn't say uh, much of Scripture. It doesn't even say most of Scripture. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. 2 Timothy chapter number 3, verse number 16. Galatians chapter number 1 and verse number 11. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to the church at Galatia, he says, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we see the Apostle Paul claiming that what he speaks, what he shares, is the word of God. Galatians chapter number 1, verse number 11. Uh, Hebrews chapter number 1 and verse number 1 says this. God, who at various, that's what the word sundry means, at various times in, in diverse manners. So this is something God did in various ways. This is something he did in diverse ways, the Bible says that he spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. This was not just a teacher. These were not just some wise men. The Bible says that these were the very words of God. Hebrews chapter number one, verse number one. Let's keep moving. First Corinthians chapter number two and verse number 13. Which things we also speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth. And so we here see this, is, this was not just uh, the wisdom of man, this is not this, just the teaching of some prophets. This is not just the ideology of a man on a mountain. No, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, which things we speak is not the words of man's wisdom, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth. And so in these verses that I share, if you notice carefully, you'll see that the entire Trinity is given here uh, authority over the Word of God. It says that God wrote the Word, Jesus wrote the Word, the Holy Ghost wrote the Word. We see the Trinity being involved in the Scripture creation. In fact, uh, you'll find the phrase, thus 
saith the Lord. It's all throughout the Old Testament. Thus saith the Lord. You ever read that before? You're reading through the Bible. Thus saith the Lord. You will find that phrase over 400 times in your Bible. Thus saith the Lord. Uh, Maybe you're reading through the scriptures and you see the phrase, God said. God said. Somebody says, well, I don't know if the Bible was written by God. Well, 46 times the Bible says, God said. (laughs) 46 times, God said. You say, why are you sharing all these scriptures with us? Because I want you to know that the scriptures do declare themselves to be the word of God. Now, there may be some of your friends or some of your coworkers who choose not to believe that. That is their prerogative. They have a free will. They don't have to believe it. But here's what I'm saying. What they can't say is, well, the Bible doesn't claim to be God's word. Because as we saw today, and as we'll continue to see throughout today, over and over and over again, the Bible does claim to be from God. How does it do that? The scriptures declare God to be the author of the Bible. Here's a second way. The scriptures reveal dozens of fulfilled prophecies. The scriptures reveal dozens of fulfilled prophecies. All throughout the Bible, there are prophecies that are written about, a lot of them written in the Old Testament canon of Scripture. Written, the Old Testament canon was finished. It was completed over 400 years before Jesus came on the scene. Okay, I want you to get the, I want you to get the timeline here. Okay, the Scriptures, the Old Testament was finished 400 years. 400 years later, Jesus came on the scene. Uh, here's what's interesting. Uh, 200 years before Jesus, they actually translated the Old Testament canon of Scripture into the Greek language. It was originally written in the Hebrew. It was finished 400 years before Jesus. 200 years before Jesus, they actually translated it into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And so we literally, historically, this is just a, this is just a fact, we have man- manuscripts of the Septuagint, the Old Testament that was written 400 years before Christ, it was translated 200 years before Christ, which means if it was translated 200 years before Christ, that means we had to have what it was translated from before that. I don't know if this is making sense, but you can't translate Dr. Seuss into another language until you have it in the first language. Are you, are you tracking with me here? I can't translate Dr. Seuss into Spanish if I don't first have it in English. In order to have a translation, I need an original. So for us to be able to go to a museum and see a Septuagint, which was the Old Testament translated from Hebrew into Greek 200 years before the time of Jesus, that means that we had to have those original manuscripts before that time. So why do you say that? Because it leads to a lot of credibility about these messianic prophecies. So, in the book of Micah, chapter number 5, this is 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. Micah was written about 735 B.C. 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, Micah prophesies, he gives a messianic prophecy that says Jesus, this coming Messiah, this one who would take away the sins of the world, he says he'll be born in... Bethlehem. 700 years before Jesus. Think about what was going on 700 years ago from now. I mean, think about 700 years. 700 years is a long time. We're talking about the 1300s, if we were thinking about it. A prophecy that was made in the 1300s coming true now. 700 years is a long time. And Micah, 
makes a prophecy that Jesus would be born in a little obscure city called Bethlehem. Well, in Matthew chapter number 2, 700 years later, we find that that prophecy comes to fulfillment, and Jesus is indeed born in where? Bethlehem. What's interesting is that's not where his parents were from. Makes it even more fascinating. All right? A little baby, a little couple from Nazareth, born in Bethlehem. In Zechariah chapter number 11, there is another messianic prophecy. It says that Jesus, or this coming Messiah, this one that would come to take away the sins of the world, who would be the savior of the Jewish people, he would be betrayed and sold for 30 pieces of silver. That's a very unique prophecy. And yet we see in Matthew chapter number 26, verse 15, that he indeed, he was betrayed for what? 30 pieces of silver, hundreds of years later. In Psalms chapter number 22, it said that this coming Messiah, the Savior of the world, he would literally die by having his hands pierced through. Now, here's what's interesting about that. Uh, Psalms written some 1,000 years before the time of Christ, talking about this Messiah being pierced through. Here's what's interesting. When the Psalms were being written crucifixion was not a means of capital punishment. That's not how you would uh, perform capital punishment on somebody who had murdered or somebody who deserved uh, that type of punishment. Uh, Capital punishment in that day and age, especially among those who had been involved in the Psalms, the way you would uh, capital punishment somebody who had murdered or something like that is you would stone them to death. And so it's really interesting that within that cultural context in which it would be normal for somebody to experience capital punishment by being stoning, that they said, no, this Messiah won't be stoned. That's what's normal in our culture. Uh, The Messiah will actually be pierced through his hands. You see, the Romans were actually advanced in their ability to torture people. And they came up with this thing called crucifixion where they pierced them through the hands. And, and it, was a very, it was a very awful way to die because in reality the way a person would die is they would literally suffocate as the fluid would fill their lungs. That way of torture, that way of capital punishment had not even been invented when the book of Psalms was written. <laughs> and yet a thousand years before that, The Messianic prophecy says, now the Messiah, this coming one who will save the world, he'll be pierced through. We have these Messianic prophecies. We have prophecies about the birth of the Messiah. We have prophecies about the life of the Messiah. We have prophecies about the death of the Messiah. There are prophecies about end times, some of which have already come to pass in the last hundred years. And so there are all these prophecies, and these prophecies should lead us to weigh out the evidence and say, how can we trust the Bible? Well, one, the Bible says so. This is some of the internal evidences, the internal scriptural evidences. But we have all of these fulfilled prophecies that also lead us to to lean into the fact that we can put our confidence in the Word of God. Internal scriptural evidences about the inerrancy of scriptures. So, we've got this block of evidence. But I told you we were going to talk about two types of evidences, not just the internal scriptural evidences, but we were also going to spend some time talking about some external scholastic evidences. You say, why? There might be some of friends of yours 
And they say, well, of course the Bible says it's written by God, but why do you believe the Bible? Well, because the Bible, the Bible says for us to. Well, why can you trust it? Because it says so. And they might look at you and say, uh, that's circular reasoning. You believe the Bible because it says so? You look at what it says because, it, because you believe it, and it just kind of goes in circles. Now, the reason I think it's important to share it as a pastor is because I'm of the firm belief that God's word changes lives, that it will not return void. And as I share the word of God, it does a work in the heart, it does a work in the mind, it changes us from the inside out. So I have no problem sharing the word of God knowing that it will go forth and accomplish that which it's set forth to do. However, this is not the only type of evidence that we have that leads us to believe and put our confidence in the word of God. Not only is there internal uh, evidences you know, around scripture, there are also these external scholastic evidences, and that's what I want to talk about here for a moment, because we see this in verse number 16, it says, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just something that we made up. You see, while Christianity is founded on a bedrock of faith, it is not by any stretch an irrational faith. It's not irrational. It is an informed faith. And there are many ways that it, uh, the scriptures inform what we believe. So, where does scholastic evidence come from? Scholastic evidence is formed through academic research that is founded on logic, reasoning, and rational thought. Proverbs chapter number 2 verse 6 says this, For the Lord giveth wisdom. The Lord giveth it. Even our ability to have rational thought, even our ability to reason something out, that capability comes from God himself. Uh, Proverbs 2 goes on to say, The Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. Now, I don't have time to get into all of the external evidences that point us toward the fact that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. So let me share three major areas that we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about scholastic evidence that's based on science, scholastic evidence that's based on archaeology, and scholastic evidence that's based on history. All right, I'll try to do my best in these three areas uh, to help us kind of see some evidence from external scriptural sources. Number one, scholastic evidence based on science. While the Bible is not a science book, everything it states in regards to science is verifiable. It's not a science book. It doesn't claim to be. But what it, when it does speak about science or something scientific, it is verif verifiable. It was John Lennox who said this, Far from belief in God hindering science, it was the motor that drove it. In fact, Isaac Newton when he discovered the law of gravitation, did not make the common mistake of saying, now I have discovered the law of gravity, I don't need God anymore. Instead, he wrote Principia Mathematica, the most famous book in the history of science, expressing the hope that it would persuade the thinking of man to believe in a creator. Uh, we've got a picture of Herbert Spencer. He was a well-known scientist uh, who died in 1903. And in his scientific career, he had become noted for one really great discovery. It was the categorical contribution that he made. He, he discovered that all reality, 
Everything that exists in the universe can be contained in five categories. And he said them as time, force, action, space, and matter. And to this day, scientists would not disagree that that, those are the five categories of everything that exists. Nothing exists out of those categories. That was very astute discovery and and didn't come around until the late uh, 19th century. Now think about it. Spencer even listed it in that uh, order. Time, force, action, space, and matter. It's a logical sweet sequence. And with that in mind, I want you to now think about the very first book, very, very first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. In the first verse of the Bible, God said plainly that What man didn't categorize till the 19th century, he had categorized in the very first verse of the Bible. Everything that could be said about everything that exists is said in Genesis chapter number 1 and verse number 1. You see, science can provide evidence to the fact that the Bible was indeed written by God. Though its many scientific statements stated well before modern science had any recollection of these ideas, it thus proves that a great deal of evidence for the inspiration of the scriptures. Now, there are so many of these I could get into, so let me just share a few with you. Let's talk, first of all, about the shape of the earth. Uh, For a long time, people really believed that the earth was flat, and and that was because of their perspective. They they look out, and they see a flat earth, and so for many years, that was kind of just the common belief, that the earth was flat. It's kind of funny. I saw this thing going around the internet on my Facebook feed, and I guess there's some NBA players right now that are really thinking the earth's flat, and they're really pushing it pretty hard. I'm like, this is interesting, you know, and they're convinced about it, and so they've got some other NBA players, and they're all talking about how the earth is flat, whatever the case may be, uh, but the Bible Uh, refers to the circle of the earth. What's interesting, Isaiah chapter number 40, verse number 22, uh, that was written 700 years before Christ. I mean, we're talking almost 3,000 years ago, the Bible said that the earth was round. Well before science had caught up with some of that, the circle of the earth, the shape of the earth. Uh, Another one is the oceanic currents. The oceanic currents, you know, the currents in the the sea that uh, many uh, uh, cruise liners and ships will use, it was discovered in the late 1800s by a a scientist by the name of Matthew Fontaine Morey. He discovered that there were literally these huge currents, and these vessels could use these currents to get to their destination much, much faster. And so large oceanic charts and maps have been created based on his initial discoveries. But it's interesting that in math, uh, Psalms, I'm sorry, Psalms chapter number 8 and verse number 8, the Bible talks about the paths of the sea 1,000 years before the time of Christ. 3,000 years ago. Talked about the paths of the sea. And science simply just started validating it a little over 100 years ago. Now, the Bible's not a science book, but anytime it talks about science, it's eventually verifiable. Talking about the shape of the earth, talking about the oceanic currents. Uh, Here's another one, the stars. Before the invention of the telescope, people believed the stars could actually be numbered. 
It was a very common belief among uh, uh, people who, scientists who study the stars. They'd look out on a clear night. They said you could count the stars. People were so confident of this, they drew up star charts with the stars' names and, and the numbers. Uh, uh, they'd create these elaborate charts, and they'd, they'd oh, there's that star, and they count it. That was star number 15. That's star number 30. This is that star's name. That's that star's name. Uh, they drew up these starts. The German astronomer, Johannes Kepler, in the 1500s, he counted 1,006 stars. He drew up a big elaborate chart. He numbered them. He gave them names. He said, look, I found all the stars. <laughs> then the Greek astronomer and mathematician, Hippocarius, he claimed that there were 1,026 stars. He had his charts, had their names, had their numbers. The astronomer, uh, astronomer and mathematician, Ptolemy, he said that there were 1,056 stars. He had his charts, had their numbers, had their names. And then one day, somebody invented something called a binocular. <laughs> and everything changed. I'm told that with this good set of binoculars, it's actually possible to identify 200,000 stars just with a, a basic set of binoculars. 200. 200,000. And then the telescope came out. With a good telescope, you can identify 15 million stars. People are like, man, there's actually 15 million stars out there. That's a lot of stars. And then they created large observatories with these massive, you know, uh, telescopes that could reach into deep space. And they said, no, there's actually billions of stars. There's, there's billions of them. And then a few years back, we sent this thing into space called the Hubble Telescope. How many of you remember this? And then scientists said, we can't number the stars. <laughs> Did you know the Bible actually said that 2,500 years ago in Jeremiah? <laughs> the stars can no man number. Scientists have said at a minimum, as they do their best to look across the galaxies, they said at a minimum, there is one septillion stars, minimum. Uh, to give you an idea of how many that is, that is one followed by 24 zeros. One septillion at a minimum. Jeremiah chapter number 32 verse 22 says, the stars can no man number. See, we're all like, there's one septillion out there, and something's going to happen in the next few decades, and they're going to realize, oh, yeah, yeah, there's actually more we, we saw. <laughs> Why? Because the stars can no man number. Shape of the earth, oceanic currents, stars. I'm looking at the time right now. I don't have time to go on, but we could go to Job chapter 26 and see where the Bible talks about the gravitational pull. We could go to Ecclesiastes chapter number one and look at what the Bible says about the hydrologic cycle. We could go to Psalms 102 and look at the law of increasing entropy. We could go to Ecclesiastes chapter number one and look at the, what the Bible says about atmospheric circulation. We could go to Second Peter and look at what the scriptures say about the conservation of mass and energy. We could go to Leviticus chapter number 17 and find out what God says about how the life is in the blood. Uh, for many years, they believed that it was good to just, you know, if somebody was sick, you let, you released them of all their blood, all of it. <laughs> and then you put new blood back in. They, they did this to somebody, his name, remember George Washington? This is what the doctors did to him. You know what happened? He died. <laughs> 
wasn't a good idea. <laughs> they released him of all his blood. We're going to give him good blood. What? How, how? He, did, he didn't make it. <laughs> Leviticus 17 talks about how the life is in the blood. Job chapter number 26 talks about the suspension of the earth. Uh, many cultures around the earth for many thousands of years, believe, had all these different theories and all these di- different ideas about how the world, you know, kind of uh, one, one group taught that it was, it was the earth floated on a giant turtle around the cosmos. <laughs> All these different ideas, but the Bible's been very clear in Job 26, you know, the world hangs on nothing. God holds it up. So there is scholastic evidence based on science, and I don't have time to get into all the many specifics, but if you want to do some apologetic studies, I promise you there's a whole lot of evidence that will hopefully lead you to stand up and be able to say, man, I can put my confidence, even from a scientific perspective, in the Word of God. But let me give you some more scholastic evidence based on history, based on history. How many of you remember H.G. Wells? He was an old author, wrote, I think, Time Machine and some other different ones, H.G. Wells. He uh, said this, he says, I'm an historian, but I'm not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Not a believer, not a Christian, just a simple historian. And he said, there's something to this story. Charlie Campbell, he said, there are dozens of writings outside of the Bible that verify the historical accuracy of many of the names of places, people, and events mentioned in the scriptures. In fact, external sources verify that at least 80 persons mentioned in the Bible were actual historical figures, 50 from the Old Testament and 30 people from the New Testament. So what Charlie Campbell was saying, it's not just that the Bible talks about these people and these places and these circumstances. We have historical documents from other places other than the Bible that tell us that these events, these people are real. There are dozens of writings that survive outside of the Bible. Uh, In the records of the Assyrians as archaeologists would dig up some of these uh, writings from the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Romans, they verify that the historical accuracy of the Bible records of different persons, places, and events are actually true. Uh, some of these people, like Josephus, I think we might have a, uh, something on Josephus. Uh, Flavius Josephus was a Jewish historian uh, during the first century, all right? Uh, he wasn't a believer by any stretch of the imagination. He was just a historian. When things would happen in the community, when things would happen in Jerusalem, when things would happen in Israel, he'd write it down. He was just a, a basic historian. If you read the works of Flavius Josephus, he mentions many of the events that are talked about in the scriptures he refers to. He refers to Jesus. So some who stands up and says, I just believe Jesus was a figment of somebody's imagination. You can't do that and have any academic integrity to what you're saying. It's just there are sources, historical sources outside the scriptures that prove the veracity and authenticity of what the Bible teaches. We could talk about Cornelius Sataticus in AD 55. He was a Roman historian that talks about much of what we hear about in the scripture. Uh, Gaius Suetonius, who's the chief secretary of the emperor Hadrian in uh, AD 117, he wrote of much of what is spoken of in the scriptures. Uh, another one is the Jewish Talmud, uh, written by the Sanhedrin. Uh, they share much of what we read about in scripture. And so there are historical references outside the scriptures that show the authenticity and the accuracy of what we read in the word of God. In fact, the book of Acts was routinely used as a map in the ancient world. As it talks about the travels of the apostle Paul on his different missionary journeys, uh, the book of Acts was often used as a map to find certain places, to find certain people. Uh, We could talk about uh, scholastic evidences based on archaeology. 
Does archaeology have anything to say? Charles Colson said this, the Bible's historical accuracy is a reminder that while the heavens declare the glory of God, there is also plenty of evidence among the rubble and the ruins. <laughs> yes, the heavens declare the glory of God, but so do archaeological finds. Uh, Nelson Gluck, uh, he actually appeared on the cover of Time magazine back several decades ago. Uh, he was considered the greatest archaeologist ever. He was kind of a modern-day Indiana Jones. You know who I'm talking about? I mean, this, this, was, this, is, this is the guy who Indiana Jones was based on, all right? This guy, Nelson Gluck, he had this to say in the article. He said, no archaeological discovery was ever overturned. No, no archaeological discovery has ever overturned a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or in exact detail historical statements in the Bible. And by the same token, proper evaluation of biblical description has often led to amazing discoveries. Do you see what Nelson's saying? He's saying, as I went to the Bible, he says, I actually followed it and I actually found things from the Bible that I read about and I found them through archaeology. I used the maps found in the book of Acts. And he said it actually led to many of my discoveries. These are the words of a man who was credited with uncovering more than 1,500 ancient sites in the Middle East. 1,500 archaeological sites was found by Nelson. And he basically said, I haven't found one that disproves anything that's in the Scripture. In fact, most of my discoveries were made as I read the Scriptures. The book of Acts, and it showed me, the, oh, there's these people, and there's those people. And he'd go to those places, and... He'd find it to be true. There's scholastic evidence based on archaeology. And we could go on. Yeah, we talked about scientific evidence. We've talked about, you know, historical evidence. We've talked about archaeological evidence. I mean, we could literally spend weeks. We could talk about logical evidences. As you just use basic reasoning and rationale, there's logical evidence that would lead us to, to understand that this book is God's word. We could talk about literary evidences. There's just a whole lot in the way this is written uh, that leads us to have confidence in its authenticity and its accuracy. We could talk about logical evidences, literary evidences. We could talk about longevity evidences. Do you realize that there's very few books that have been tried to be destroyed quite like the Bible? There have been so many throughout time who've wanted this thing dead. They've wanted it gone. They've wanted it destroyed. And yet it continues to survive. Well, the Bible claims it will. It claims itself that it will not be destroyed. It will endure. It will be preserved from generation to generation. There's a longevity evidences. There are life-changing evidences. All right? You'd, you'd, you'd find very few sociologists who would disagree with the fact that this book has impacted more lives. There are very few books in the world that have impacted as many lives. I mean, billions throughout the generations have been impacted by this book. There's this, there's this life change evidence that we could talk about, and we could go on and on and on. You say, why are you sharing with us, this with us? Because you can place your confidence in it. Whether it's from a scientific perspective, an archaeological perspective, a historical perspective. Yes, it is faith. At the end of the day, none of us were there. Just like if we were a juror on a jury, we did not see what happened. So we have evidence. And if you have any intellectual integrity, then you have to stand back and weigh out the evidence. And I think from that perspective, if you sit back and weigh out the evidence, you'll find that the faith that we hold to 
is not an irrational faith. I hear a lot of 20-somethings, 21 and 22-year-olds, and they're like, I just don't know if I can believe the Bible. Okay, that's, you know what? They're like, they have questions. I want to say this, that's good. You should have questions. If you're here and you're struggling with some doubt, that's okay. This is not about blind faith. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to struggle with this a little bit. But have the, have, have the intellectual integrity to search it out and weigh out the evidence for yourself. Don't just echo what one of your friends says who's never cracked open a science book, an archaeological book, you know, a history book. They read something on some website one day, you know, and now they know, you know, what, what the world's all about. It's not an irrational faith. It really isn't. It's an informed faith. Is it faith? Yes. But it's an informed faith and a faith that we can put our trust in. Last week, God's word is powerful. This week, God's word is reliable. Come back next week. I think this is going to be awesome. We're going to talk about how God's word is helpful. How does it help our daily lives? And I think it'll be a huge, huge encouragement. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.